The fool may think he's a wise man, but the wise man knows what a fool he's been. I'm Paul Falcone. Welcome to the Pro Fools Podcast. I'm joined by Matthew Sim, international engineer, mixer, and staff engineer at Germano Studios, New York City. Hey, Matt. Hey, work. What's up? What's up, man? We're in two different parts of the world right now. Yep. Uh, I was apart, so... This is great. I'm, I'm glad to see you uh, here on yep. IG Live. This is our first uh, IG Live ever for the Pro Fools podcast here for season two, yeah. episode one. Thanks for having me. So, Hey, man, it's uh, it's been a long time coming. I know we talked about uh, getting you on the show uh, months ago, so it's really right. good to see you here. Yep, we'll finally uh, do it. So. <clears throat> yeah. So first, uh, tell us where you are. I am in Hong Kong with my family Right on. Yeah. It's a pretty awesome looking studio. I see you got, a, are those NS10s or those? Yep, yeah, NS10s. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And those are the, the uh, APS outboard. next yep. to it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we'll, that's we'll, we'll get talking about the <laughs> APSs in, in, a, in a little while. Yep. Uh, but yeah, first I'd like to get right into it here. How did you get your start? Like what, what, what inspired you to get into, you know, making records, the recording industry? It's a long story, but it's kind of accident. So. <laughs> so th- didn't that's plan great. to do it. Didn't plan to do it. It's all happened, whatever the universe want me to do. So, got it. So, yeah, I, I was originally planning to go. Like, I, I went to Berkeley College of Music. I think mm-hmm. you too, right? Yes. So from my side of like of the world, like people know Berkeley College of Music as a performance school because of the jazz history and the musician that they educated throughout the years. So I went to Berklee College of Music as a guitarist and tried to learn to play the jazz guitar and try to become a better guitar player. I see. So, and then I went to school and realized it's a totally different thing. Because <laughs> all my peers and colleagues and all the classmates, they're all super dope musicians already. I'm just like a beginner kind of musician. So, and it was like really tough for me to catch up and stuff like that. So I was like, okay. And w- at the same time, I think the recording side of things kind of, Everybody talking about it in school. Mm-hmm. So everybody tried to get to like the music production engineering major. Yeah. Because it's like popping right now. People making beats and people mixing, recording. It's kind of cool. It's, it's unknown territory for me. So I was like trying to learn more. So I just follow my classmates. Like, hey, this is like a really cool major. Let's get it together. So I'm like, okay, let's do it. So wow. I was doing dual major at the same time, doing production engineering and doing performance at the same time. So, and then, um, and slowly I kind of slow down on my practice and everything because I spend more time in engineering production because I actually have more passion in that side of the business or the, in that side of the business and then performance. It's just That's also cool. like more opportunities for everybody to get into the door. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I was thinking like, if I'm performance, uh, performers and then I went to real world and try to make a living, it's going to be really tough. Because the school is kind of like a microscope, like a real reality society kind of thing. So, so a lot of musicians, they couldn't make any money after they graduate or whatever. So I saw like how my senior is doing and everything. I'm like, okay, I got to try something else. So that's why I'm like focusing more on my skills in engineering production. And I actually really like it. And slowly I'm getting more gigs locally. So that's when I do like, do that like full time and. Wow. So that's my education. So I was like, like a staff engineer in like couple of studios in Boston. 
Mm-hmm. And then I was doing like some live stuff in in Boston as well, doing front of house and everything. So that's I was doing that for like three four years. Got and it. then it's around time for me to graduate, so I don't know where to go. I was planning to go to Atlanta because I went to a trip to Atlanta with my teachers and everything. I thought it was cool, and the music scene was popping there, and that's the music I like to do. It's like urban stuff, so. But then that didn't happen because <laughs> I just didn't know where to go. And I mean, I couldn't find a job there. I couldn't find a gig remotely. And I never been to LA, so that wasn't an option for me. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to my teacher and also my mentor, Prince Charles Alexander, one day. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was talking about like my frustration in where to go. So he was giving me a, me a lead. It's like, hey, you should come to New York with me because I got a gig in New York at Germano Studio. So. Wow. So I packed up in two days and then moved to New York and see what happened. <laughs> That's and then, yeah, and then I was assisting him in Germano Studio for like two weeks. And and then that got me an interview with Troy Germano. And then months later, they finally had an opening and I took the job and stayed there till then. Wow, <laughs> that that is a great story. I, I, I didn't realize that. Uh, so you went that you went to Berkeley as a musician first, and, yes. you, and you discovered the studio side at in yeah. Berkeley. I can't even use. I don't. I didn't know how to use GarageBand at that time. No wow. idea. No, I, it was a fresh start for me. So I was picking everything. <laughs> I, I think that's that's really inspiring to to up and comers because I I certainly run across students that uh, are you know more musicians based and they're just starting to learn about the studio in their first you know, year or two at school right. and they feel like there's there's a lot there's a lot to learn but I think you're living proof that you can really succeed at it. You can do it. I think I like also at the same time I got that mindset also and the years. It kinda mm-hmm. get me going quicker than anybody else for some reason. Yeah. But I think I also find my like I'm good at this area so maybe sure. I should spend more time and develop that kind of skills. And I think I make a right decision because I was trying so hard, trying to perform and practice and everything. It just wasn't improving mm-hmm. like I was expecting. Yeah. So <laughs> interesting. That that's really that's really fascinating. What did you find the most valuable that that you learned from those MP, MP&E classes? Uh, definitely the core classes and basic classes. I think it gives me like a solid knowledge and theories and all the maths behind it mm-hmm. and everything. And then. Yeah, what else? I think it's also interacting with people. Yeah. Like with all the students and dealing with all the musicians, different style of music and and using different console. That's really cool. Because you don't have the chance to like touch a leaf and the SSL in any places at the same time. Sure. And you can try all kind of mics and stuff. I think it's more like the experimenting like side of things really helps me to develop my skills because I tried and it didn't work. So I knew okay, this is not for me. Or, okay, I make that mistake in the studio. Not not going to do that again, so. Got it. Yeah. I really like the fact that you brought up talking about learning how to interact with people because that's certainly a major part of working in the music industry is, is, is how to work with people. Right. Uh, and certainly school is a great place to experiment and, and learn from yeah. your mistakes. So how would you compare that to your experience once, you, that's a great like it's almost well, not your first gig, but because uh, you said you were a staff engineer at other yeah. studios in Boston, but that's that's a great gig to land in New York. That's a pretty high profile yeah. studio. How would you how would you compare it to well how would you how would you compare it to what you learned in 
the studios in Boston and the studios at Germano compared to what you learned at school? What what was different in in that? I think in school, like like we deal with like a lot of like artists and musicians from all around the world. You kind of learn where they come from, the background, the culture, and everything, which is cool for me to pick up and work with like international artists.、Mm-hmm. But at the same time, in school, everybody was super simple. We're just like focusing on the music, try to get the best out of it. Yeah. But in the real world, like in the real studio, you you're not only dealing with just music. You're dealing with a lot of politics, a lot of like dramas, and a lot of more stuff than than just music. You also deal with like people' emotions and stuff like that. So you know, like, you kind of like a therapy in the real studio. Sometimes you gotta learn how to fit in and everything. A- absolutely. So,、yeah. also working in a place like Germano, that's a fairly competitive environment. What's it like working in that type of environment? I love my peers, and they're really great guys, and I、yeah. love them. And that's why I choose to work with the studio. At the same time, it's the people、yeah. that I work with. I think it's like more we work together as a team, and everybody、mm-hmm. got their own strength. And I also learned from them when I first started. So, I never thought I'm competing with them. Because like everybody was doing different things, some some of my like senior they like they love recording, which I'm less fond of. I'm more like a mixing production guy. So everybody got their own specialty, and we never really fight for the gigs, unless like not yeah. I don't remember I never f- competed with anybody for gigs. We usually just like hey, I couldn't do it. Can you cover cover it up for me? Like do that gigs for me,、That's、and、cool. usually like our boss just assigns gigs that. That makes us learn the most, and also th- thought we will survive, and we work really well with the client. It's also like matching per- different like personalities within other personalities. So if the artist has certain personalities, like you can put like similar personalities or like completely different personalities, it gotta be like mix and match. So so it's all about the team. Yeah, it's all about the team. Everybody covering each other. So. That's, I think it works really well, and that's the culture that we we have. We're not trying to compete and try to like, yeah. We're helping each other out. So that's great. That's、yeah. great. Teamwork makes the dream work. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, so okay, uh, because it is 2020 now, and we, I'd say we all do a lot of work from home or home-based studios,、uh, artist homes, you know, apartments, hotel rooms. Uh, but then you know, also you have the experience of working in large format studios.、Yeah. How would you com- how would you compare working at home versus working in a large format studio? Do do you approach sessions differently? Uh, I actually don't. In a way, let me see how I'm gonna phrase this answer really well. <laughs> so I think working in the studio, you got a lot more gears as your at your disposal. And a nicer listen environment, but at the same time, the complication is you have to deal with the client in real time, physically at the same time. So you have to deal with a lot of the emotions and the personalities. So that kind of add complication of what you just try to focus on, just like making the music sound the best as you can. But at home, or like in a small studio or like a private studio, you don't have to deal with that kind of stuff. You're really just focusing on the music. For like a couple hours, get it done to like where you think it sounds great, and you send it out, and then wait for email or call. But like technically, I think that's no different because we're all using similar gears, except like you're using analog or using plug-in. But the concept 
you learn and you apply is the same. It's just the tool is different. And also at the end of the day, it's just your years and your taste and how you use different gears in a certain way. So, yeah. How much online collaboration goes into each situation? Whether it's working in a say, say you're working in your studio and you're right. collaborating with artists. Do are there many attended sessions? And even in a large format studio, uh, how much online collaboration goes into it? Like, how can you compare the two? Uh, I mean, in a real studio, rarely there's online collaboration because people book a real studio and a big nice studio, a commercial studio, because it's part of the experience for them. So they can be in the room and feel how the music sound. So there's rarely any online collaboration unless like, okay, last minute, hey, can we do some changes on the mix? Or like, can you find the files for me? Then they will call you up and you go to the studio and find, find it. But that's about it. Uh, but for like, like at my home studio, private studio, it's all online collaboration. Um, rarely is uh, attend a session because I don't think people are interested to like even streaming or skyping at the same time because it's boring. Mm. They 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 only care about like can you do it as quick as possible, and then they will listen to it once you're done, mm. and then they will call you and then they'll send you notes or they will Skype you and say hey can we do some quick changes and then we should be good. That's about it. I think it's more efficient working in a home student that way because you're constantly working on just music and then we just try to finish it up. But in real studio, a lot of time you're not just making music, you're partying, you're drinking, uh-huh. <laughs> you're playing back music or what they were doing other stuff. They're doing music video editing, they're having conference. So maybe you have a 12 hour session, maybe four hours is working or less. And out of time, we're just like doing other stuff. So people are distracted by other stuff. Because you can't stay focused for 12 hours that long. It's not, I mean, it's like a nine to five job. You can't really focus for that long anyway, so. Yeah. But also it's the vibe too. Like, I love being in a big studio. It's just a different vibe. It's more creative and it's more focused. And also the sound system is cool and you see all the nice gear, it's inspiring to me. I love working in a big studio, but like other people, like after they go, like they, 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 they went over that, they would just be like, okay, I need to do other stuff as well. Responding to email, getting a conference call and stuff like that. Got it. Okay. Uh, so uh, when you're approaching a mixing session, what, mm-hmm. what is your, what is your approach? Uh, whether it be at home or in a large format studio, how do you start? Uh, I mean, first of all, I usually listen to the rough mix first, just to see like where we are, if it needs a lot of work or there's something wrong with the rough mix or like, okay, it's getting really close to the final. I just need to touch it up or something. So I probably would discuss with the client first and just to see where we're at and what we try to achieve. So let's say it's a semi rough mix. It sounds like to me, I'll listen to it. And then from my understanding of music and and the fam- uh, how familiar with, uh, for me with that style of music, I try to find a commercial reference as well for myself, like a mental note. And I would discuss with the client, say, hey, your music kind of sounds like The Weeknd or sounds like this and that. I think it's like a mixture of your rough mix and that. I can try to get you to there. So it's kind of limit the expectation first and also see if our vision and, like uh, is aligned. So, and then I'll get the files, clean it up and everything, prep everything. And, and what else? And then 
and then I'll do like a, usually I mix pretty quickly, like within a couple hours, less than six hours usually, if like no major problem. I'll get it done to where I think it sounds really close to like what I want it to sound like. Because I also in the first pass, I like to like experiment a little bit, put my ideas in. I think it sounds great on radio and stuff like that. And then we'll go from there and tweak it to someone's preference. Got it. Yeah. Uh, do you get into a lot of uh, fixing when it comes to mixes? I try to eliminate that. Eliminate that because, like, I I would do fixing from time to time, like small minor stuff, but not like major. Like, can you tune the vocal for me or whatever? Because these days, like, people don't know how to sing. Sometimes they rely on auto tune, but they they didn't know like they have to record through auto tune to get an auto tune sound. So sometimes they send you a raw vocal track with no pitch at all. They expect you to tune everything and then put auto tune on it and make it sound cool. So in that kind of situation, to me, it's like a major fixing. I couldn't decide it for you. It's nine out of ten is set to a failure because it's just like you. There's no score or anything. You don't know what they try to sing, and you try to fix it. It sounds like pleasing, and then they was like, "Oh, that's not what I meant." And what you meant, like that's it's a moving target. So I try to avoid all this fixing. Uh, but like for like, let's say there's noise in the background or there's some crackling sound or clipping sound, then I'll try to fix it because I can or it's just easier. Like I know what to do to clean that up. So I'll do that. And what else? Like I don't do a much comping because that's supposed to be a producer engineering job, engineer job. So anything that involves like a creative decision, I try not to be involved too much for just for, for if I'm mixing. So I try to stay out of trouble because that could spend hours and hours and hours. That's not just mixing. And by the, t- by the time I spend five, six hours fixing it, I'll be like exhausted and tired of it with the music. And I don't have the creative mindset to do a good mix. That's, that, that's great advice. Uh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Because uh, it, it allows, it, taking that approach allows you to focus on just the mix and not, yeah. and, and not reproducing someone's record in, in the yeah. process. Yeah. I mean, unless I'm physically with a client in the studio then yes i don't mind like tuning or fixing a couple of tunings with you and together that's totally fine because you're here and we can make the decision at the same time instead of i'm just shooting in the dark send it to you you didn't like it i was like why you didn't like it it sounds fine <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 makes a lot of sense yeah uh so uh, how do you how do you approach a recording session uh or, First or, or of all, maybe I should back right. that up a little bit. Say, uh, say someone wants to record. Say it's just you know overdubs. Say someone yeah. wants to you know uh, do overdubs with you. Uh, what what? How do you get ready for that? How do you like what? What are the steps you take to get ready for uh, an overdub session? I think there's a lot of preparation involved in an overdubbing session or any recording session. I usually like if a client I never worked with before, I try to like go online and research it and see how they sounds like, what kind of style music they're going for, what they usually do. And if they have an email of like the music they're working on that we're going to record, of course I take a listen and see, okay, what decision making I'm gonna make like for my choices, gears, and, and maybe, you know, you can go on YouTube or Instagram and see how they usually record. Cause like, there's a, you, you try to create a similar vibe that they're used to, so they can perform the best. So let's say if they want to record in control room, that's how they're accustomed to. You try to accommodate the same thing. So you try to do a lot of as much as preparation as you can, 
just to set up a very nice environment for them and similar gears that they are used to. And also I have a couple of options of mics and gears and just to give them options. Hey, you can sound like this and what as well. So you want to try this? And we'll experiment a couple of things and see what works for them and what works for me as well. So, and also I tried to like, uh, let me think, try to get a session beforehand so I can prep everything at home and get a template ready to go for recording. So when I go to the studio, open it up, I can just press record and everything is there. And try to set up like a couple of delays and reverbs and and also like couples like plugins that I think works with what they have like before, like sound wise, try to create a similar sound. And then we'll go from there and then during the session we'll tweak stuff and stuff like that and make judgment calls. But yeah. also, yeah, when I'm mixing, I try to also think about mixing as well. Because like when you record, yeah, you capture the sound, but you also want to make sure in the mixing process, it, it, it sounds great after mixing. So you try to pre-mix the recordings just to make sure, okay, the quality is up to par and it can be mixed well. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, d- d- don't don't fix it in the mix. Get get it ready. Yeah, don't the fix it. Like, cause, yeah, because some people record it, they think it's going to, like someone's going to mix it well, fine. But they never actually really hear. It's like, hey, the low end is too much. This proximity effect. They thought someone just going to EQ it out. But yeah. sometimes you can. There's a room mode, like, or there's a room sound. There's a reverb going on. You don't hear it. There's feedback going on. People just not noticing it. Yeah. So sometimes you have to like pre-mix, like EQ a little bit just to clean up the vocals or clean up some instruments and to hear what actually going on. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. So, so how do you uh, do you approach like full tracking sessions uh, differently than that? Not really. Yeah. I try to have like template set up, have my mice in my mind on the setup, how to place the instruments in the room, everything ready to go, and also talk to the client see what kind of style they're going for, how many instruments, what setup they're trying to, like what setup they have. Like let's say drums, how many toms, yeah. stuff, stuff like that, or how many guitars, how many amps they bring in. So I try to plan in advance because there's only so many mics you can use. And let's say U87, there's only five U87. How are you going to allocate them? Yeah, It's a logistic. You got to give and go. You put a U87 on this, then the other instrument got to use something else. But you also don't want to compromise. So you try to make some plannings beforehand, but at the same time, you try to talk to the artists and see how the music's gonna sound like at the end, see what their vision is. So let's say like, okay, you can just put a tube mic on any vocal. Yeah, it sounds beautiful. But sometimes they want a lo-fi sound. You might want to use a ribbon mic mm. just for that reason. It's not common, but like it's a sound that you want to commit to it. And you try to have like a production mindset to it, like a certain instrument for a certain style of music. Same, same thoughts. Yeah, I, I love that because you're, you're going for you're going for you're, you're taking a direction. You're going for a vibe. You know, you're, you're yeah. making decisions that, uh, like you even said, you're, um, you're you're thinking about the mix from the initial tracking session. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Also, think think as a producer as well. If there's no producer, but if that producer, you try to work with him, he might send you like a reference, like, hey, I want to sound like the stroke or whatever. Then you do some research, how they record a stroke. 
is the drum mono? What mic they're using? Yeah. How do they do it? So you try to like copy the similar skills and techniques and try to apply to their music and try to work with the producer and switch things up and try to get the sound as close as the final product. Then you know to fix in the mix and do major changes. That's great. That's a great approach. Yeah, yeah I, I really like that. Uh, okay, okay, so what is your let's kind of change gears a little bit here? Yeah, no. Uh, what is your opinion of? Uh, there's so many online resources uh, in this day and age for people to to get information about mm-hmm. about recording techniques. Uh, and as you've pointed out, you can do your research online and get some great yeah. inf- information. Uh, what is your opinion of the plethora of information that we find online? Well, when I was students, everybody was going online trying to learn some new tricks. That's how I started as well, going to Pensado Place when I first started and reading Sound and Sound Magazine. It was all resourceful for me at that time, I thought. <laughs> I yeah. thought. Yeah. So and you always try to like, oh, I'm going to apply these new cool tricks like multiband this space and cool add distortion to it. But what we're missing out is we're skipping the foundation of recording or mixing. And tr- the online resources kind of give you like a shortcut straight to like advanced level. So you're missing out all of the basic information and foundation and skills that you need. So it was kind of like I kind of I got misled by the online information a little bit and doing all the weird stuff. And that doesn't really make much sense anymore. And kind of wasted a lot of people's time. <laughs> so, and then, and then only when I'm started working in the studio, I'm like, oh, okay. Actually, what I read online is not really what people are doing in the real world. Like, especially with like all the OG engineers and all the senior experienced guy. So, like, I actually forget everything I learned online, just mm-hmm. to like learn the studio from the basic and start from the basic and start see how people doing things. So that really actually helps a lot. And also I was comparing like what I read on Sound on Sound magazine because like I met a lot of engineers, they are super dope and they got interviews and they show you tricks on magazine. And some of the time you realize in real life they don't do all the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's much simpler than, than what you read on the magazine because it's a marketing thing. Mm-hmm. You try to create a lot of topics just to keep your readers interesting. So we always joke about like one day if I got an interview or whatever, I'm going to make up some stuff just to keep it cool <laughs> and interesting. And people will be like, wow, you actually do like crazy stuff like that. But in reality, I never do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and there's a lot of like self-call like professionals online. So everybody just posts like crazy IG videos, put a YouTube video with no credentials. Mm. So people thought it was cool and and you're learning actually like some wrong information that have no, like that guy has no real experience. Yeah. So for me, it's like, okay, working still really like, like taught me in a different way. And then from that point onwards, I go back to like, okay, Pensado place and look, once I got a foundation solid, then I'll start learning all the cool tricks that I wouldn't able to learn in studio sometimes. Or like, Jason Joshua got some cool tricks. I'm gonna go online and see if I can apply to what I have already, my workflow. So working, yeah. So working in the studio helped me to build my own workflow and foundation, which I know that's how people do in real life. And then I'll slowly implement different tricks I learned and try to use it a couple days, couple weeks, and see if actually works for me or not. Mm. If it's not working for me, I'm like, okay, that's 
bullshit. Okay, I'm not gonna use it. <laughs> yeah. If it's cool, I'll make it part of my tricks. Right on. Then you have more like yeah tricks to like do like work on the music and be cool and be. I mean, also be unique. You try to be unique. So it's like learning these tricks from this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and you combine it and make your own version of it. So it's like playing instruments. You learn the licks from this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. You combine it and you become like your own master. I, I so, love that. I love yeah. that. That yeah, you kind of you kind of pick and choose and develop yeah. your own style from from uh, from the bag of tricks. Correct. Yeah, and, yeah. and but I, I also think it's smart that you're saying that you need to have a solid foundation and even order to, to be able to open that absolutely bank. yeah because you need a foundation to determine whether it's real or not some yeah. tricks are fake or yeah. it's not working it's a scam <laughs> some yeah. tricks are like real real tricks it, it really works really well so that's cool yeah that's that's yeah that's it's i i couldn't agree more uh okay so do you have go-to plugins and do you how often do you incorporate new plugins into your workflow? Mm, my favorite go-to plugin, my EQ is Air EQ by Yosis. Mm. That's one of my favorite. I use it on everything, basically for surgical cutting stuff, and it's really transparent, and you don't have to do a lot. It's like couple, one or two dB. I can hear the like the the, the effect already, so it's really effective. And then I use our compressor the most these days, because mm. because of the flexibility and transparency. Like especially for like I usually use it as like fastest attack and auto release. It's mm. really transparent and kind of act as a limiter, but less aggressive than a limiter, just to control like a dynamic range. And also it doesn't take so a lot of CPU power. That's what I like, because sometimes you got like a hundred tracks, two hundred tracks, and and you try to allocate your CPU resources. So our compressor works and doesn't take a lot of CPU and really flexible with the attack time. And then uh, the air EQ same doesn't take a lot of CPU power. And then also like with UAD, I use UAD a lot as well, but like I got to plan, you know, like how I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it on like important elements like the vocals and everything because I only get like the octo satellite. So this, I can just spam it like with UAD plugins on every instruments, then <laughs> you're gonna run out of CPU power, and you keep buying more gears in it. Yeah. So I yeah. try not to find the trap, but also like it's not too often I incorporate like a new plugins, but I would try it. I'll give it a try and see what potential and what kind of like sonic ideas it can or inspiration it give it to me. So let's say I have a new tube compressor plugin I got recently. I'll try to see what the limit is and what it offers to the table. If there's anything I'm, I don't have right now in my arsenal, then I will incorporate some new plugin because let's say it gives you a cool distortion effects or like cool delay or cool reverb, then I'll use it. But like for the basic stuff like compressor and EQ, I mean, you don't need a lot of fancy new plugins. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like analog gear is like 1176. It's been you. It's been useful like decades for LA two eight. So it's proven working. And I'm grew. I grew up in the analog world, so I'm using that the most as well. Like just something I'm familiar with in the analog world. But plug-in wise, try to use something really easy to use, so I don't have to spend time learning it. Mm. If it's too complicated when you do troubleshooting, it's too difficult for me. So that's why I didn't like putting like like the 
like there's some plugin you can put like several plugins in one plugin. But if something go wrong, you know, it happens all the time. If something goes wrong, you don't know which plugin was doing that problem. And they spend hours trying to find that one plugin or creating noise or like, oh, it's not functioning. So I try to keep it simple and organized so I can see every plugin. If something not working, I can mute it and unmute it. Okay, that's the one that's not working. Mm. Yeah. I like that, the simplistic, simplistic yeah. workflow, so, so it's yeah. easy to troubleshoot. And also changes, like do changes, because like you don't want to spend hours doing mix changes. You yeah. want to spend like two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, that's it. Like, And that's why I also have my template in my DAW, just so I can do quick changes real quick. Like I have vocal bus and instrumental bus and all kind of instrumental bus, like instruments bus, like I have drum bus, bass, et cetera, et cetera. So I can just do automation real quick or change this level, rebalance it real quick. So I don't have to go back to like a hundred track session to, oh, here's a drum, let me group them, VCA them or bring them down. I'm just spend time on my aux buses and just rebalance it. It's like VCA on a console. You got 48 channels on SSL. At the end, you just try to work with those eight VCA faders in the middle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's the idea and concept. Smart, smart. Yeah. It, it enables you to work quickly and enables you yeah. to work concisely. I think yeah, that's great. Correct. So, uh, how much analog gear do you use when you're mixing? Rarely. Or, or what? Or what do you use analog gear for? I use it mostly for vocals. Mm. If the vocal is well recorded, then I'll use analog gear just to add some flavor to it. Got it. And then, but otherwise, I try to stay out of analog in mixing. Yeah. Because it might add certain. Like, like, let's say you have a tube compressor or whatever, you add to a, a vocals, it adds certain character you might not want because it adds some tube crunches to it and stuff like that. So you might not want it. And also if it's, because this is like the recording quality is not great because people record at home or in the project studio or whatever. Let's say the drum is not recorded very well and you try to run it through analog gears, it just kind of amplified the issues that you have in the recording. Interesting, yeah. So that's, I found it like really frustrating for me sometimes. Like, it's not like I don't want to use analog gear, but it's not well recorded. You use it, just make it really muddy and just, it's not great. So that's why 100% I'm using analog because it's clean. I can fix problem. But if I want to make it dirty or make it analog, I always can find some distortion plugins mm-hmm. or like exciters or like compressors that kind of simulate that kind of thing. Got it. Yeah, I. That, yeah, that's smart. Smart. But also, you don't want to like change the tonality of what they gave you, because you use analog gears, you don't know what's the outcome. It's mm. like you're running through a black box, yeah. And then certain things they does that you cannot change. It's add certain character to it. It's not just simple as oh, here's a EQ one to one. That's one to one. You're using analog because you like the non-linearity of it. So. You put one signals in, it comes out like a different signals. Even just running through it, and we wish you have no control. So you cannot do revision really well. So, so let's say people say, "Hey, can you dial down some distortion of that instrument that you use to how work is on?" It's like I can. That's how it sounds. It's cool, but there's a trade-off. It has certain character you like, but there's something you don't like. But you can have both. Yeah. Yes, smart. So but, do you, uh, but yeah. I also love recording with analog gears. I think that's part of the thing that we need to do: record with analog gears to capture that sound. 
and in, in mixing, we try to keep playing and stay true to the rough mix. So we're not trying to add more color to it, but we're refining it. So I, I found in nine out of ten, if you change it like dramatic, like drastically, like people didn't like it. So you try to stay with the rough mix, and also using analog gears is style dependent or genre dependent. So if you have a pop song like Top 40s pop song, Katy Perry kind of thing, like you can't really use analog gear because that's opposite tools that you want to use to get that bright, smooth sound. But like if you're doing rock and roll, yeah, of course you can put a lot of analog gears. That's what the style is calling for. So people always ask me, say, why don't you do, use the analog console, blah blah blah? But it's like, dude, you try to do a trap record. You're not using. That's not how people make a trap record. You, yeah. No one using console to mix a trap record. Yeah. So it depends. So you can't just put anything on anything. It just doesn't work like that. Smart. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Okay. So speaking of gear, you you've gotten into consulting on gear design. T- yeah. T- tell us how how that all came about. I I see you got your APS behind you there. Yeah. Uh, how did it happen? That's a really cool collaboration. Yeah, so it started off because I was poor when I first moved to New York, like everybody else. Started off, no money, no nothing. But like at the same time, you tried to make money at home and stuff like that, or freelance and stuff like that. So, and I always an NS10 person. I was training and working at NS10 for a long time. But at the same time, I spent months and months listening to music on the radio and see what's missing. So, and I, I have tried a lot of speakers throughout, like at school or in real studios. So I was like, I couldn't find anything that I really like. That like kind of reminds me of the sound of like NS10s, NS but at the same time has a more, more like modern vibe to it, which is like, like extend the high end, extend the low end, but also like very focused, tight sound. So I was searching it for years and couldn't find anything until one day someone showed me and said, hey, you should check out this Polish company called APS. So I contacted them. They were like nobody back then in like Poland. So I contacted them and it's like, hey, I really want to like demo your speakers and see how it, it works with my studio. So they sent me a couple of pairs of the models and which is the Aeon one and the Coax and everything. And then I actually quite like the Aeon one, which I don't. I think you have a pair as well. Yeah. The low end was really cool because I'm not a big fan of subs because it doesn't work with like a shitty room. You need a really well-designed room to have a sub, to have a really accurate sub, like low-end situation. So, and then I introduced the APS speaker to the Troy Germano at Germano Studio. Hey, and then we got a couple of pairs to use in the studio. We quite like it, but it's not quite the, where we want it yet. And I always have a vision because I'm a really picky, like when it comes to sound, like, I guess I have really good years, so I was like, hey, I, I, I want something that fit what I want. So I proposed this idea to Troy and and Ray at APS. Hey, hey, I have this idea, so how I want the speaker to sound. I think nothing in the market like that yet. So I proposed this idea with like NS10 quality, with the mid-range and the accuracy of vocal and the balance of the vocals. And then with like extra width and depth, so you can hear the reverb tail and everything clearly. And also with a like, very extended low end with our sub. So it's very accurate as a near field speaker, but it can handle like modern music really well with a lot of like low end. Cause that's like main part of like modern music. That's what we are accustomed to, but there's no speaker that can really do it really well in the market yet. So that's the missing gap. 
So I proposed and then we tested it for 17 months with multiple prototypes and we're going to make sure the level is loud enough. Like it can handle like loud SPL and it can handle the low end of like majority of music on the radio. So we play a lot of like Rihanna, uh, Drake and stuff like that just to make sure it, it passed the test. Yeah. Because like that's, those are the type of music that Germano Studio, we, we got a lot of those music. So we got to make sure you can handle that kind of job so really well, because that's like part of the culture. So we try to capture that American culture to a speaker design, I think and it's it's really cool to have like an end user to collab with the speaker company because usually people just like design the speaker in the lab, they test it with like microphone and on paper it looks great, the curve looks great, that's what we want, but they not they are not actually using it in the field. So, like, yeah, nine out of ten of speakers just couldn't work with what the music, the type of music we were doing for, like, recording, production, and mixing. Right so, on. that's the idea. It was, it was born out of necessity all around. Yeah. It was like, I want something affordable, but it can give me a sound that reminds me, I understand, but also the mains at the studios. Because mm. that's an experience, so we try to combine those and try to find a middle ground and try to make a near field speaker as small as possible, so it can it can be put in anybody's studios and still have the same sonic quality. That, that's a great approach. Yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we're getting close to wrapping it up here because yep. this is the Pro Fools podcast, and you know I like I like to tell people it's you know you. Uh, you learn the most from the mistakes that you learn and you kind of alluded to that you know uh when you're first starting out in school that's a great place to experiment and make mistakes yeah. what's the best mistake you've ever learned from best mistake like when i was in school i i blew a pair of ribbon mice putting it in front of a kick drum so that's like something i still remember it's like oh <laughs> you can actually blow a ribbon mic when it in front of a kick drum so it's not every ribbon mice you can handle that spl because I remember I saw something like that in on a magazine or like when I was when I went down to Nashville like with a school trip I saw like someone putting a ribbon mic in front of a kick drum I thought it was cool I was like I'm going to try it and then I blew it <laughs> but it was lucky it was my microphone so ah so it just cost me to fix I, I, it but I, I, I don't know if that's lucky but yeah <laughs> yeah but at least yeah, it wasn't someone else's I, yeah it wasn't the school or someone else, so yeah, yeah. I just had to pay for it. But at least I, okay, cool. That's not every microphone can handle that. And then, I mean, in recording session, you always make stupid problems. Like, oh, shit, that's not how I gain stage stuff. Because now the recording sounds so shitty and crunchy and distorting and stuff like that. And also, what else? I mean, in real studio, I'm just like, I think it's more like, I didn't make like major, major mistakes like in session and stuff like that, but it's like definitely a good way to learn how to deal with people mm. because like in real studio, it's like you got to stand your ground. That's like the lesson you got to learn and be confident of what you're doing because people can get aggressive sometimes and they try to mess with you and try to make you feel like you're so, so small and tiny. You're making mistakes all the time. But like some of the time, like most of the time people are messing with you and some of the time people are like kind of taking it seriously but you have to stand your ground and like be confident of like your training and everything. And then people will respect you more. And then you can kind of control the crowd in the studios because otherwise like they control you, then the session go out of hand. Yeah. 
<laughs> you gotta have confidence. Yeah, your confidence, and even like you don't know what you're doing, you try to act like you know what you're doing. So everybody not checking out, like okay, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Like you can tell from his face. Yeah, because like I remember when I first engineering in like the studio, and then I was freaking out. Like I was dealing with rappers. I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking. I don't know how they work, and I don't know their workflow. And they always want it quicker and quicker and quicker. Which like that's so quick you can go with like setting up and everything. And yeah, so <laughs> and then slowly like session by session, I realize okay, that's how you're gonna work with them. You gotta tell them no. It's like hey, we're setting it up. It's gonna take a minute. Just wait. Mm. <laughs> you gotta be like strong and confident, and tell them like, "Hey," and communicate with them. It's not like you're being aggressive or anything. You just try to be polite, but at the same time, you gotta be like certain of certain things. You gotta be like, "Hey, this is how I do things." Like, if you follow my lead, we can get a good result, or we can work something out in the middle. So you try to negotiate at the same time, yeah. but also you try to find that space so you can focus on getting a good sound instead of constantly just like. Listening to the trash talk, yeah. and then you got distracted. It's like I have no idea what I'm doing because they keep talking, yelling at me. <laughs> I, I, I like what you're saying. I, it, well, I interpret that as you're saying you got to be real with people. Yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah, I think that's a really good learning experience. Because like in real studio, you're dealing with like big profile client, and of yeah. course you're starstruck at first because like holy. Sh Holy crap! Like that's like okay, who this and that? It's like wow, never seen her before, and blah blah blah. And then you kind of already lose certain ground because you don't have confidence in yourself. Right on. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this is great talk, Matt. I, I really yeah. appreciate you My coming point. on the podcast. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm glad to see things are going well for you in Hong Kong. Uh, yeah. And thank you. Stay safe, everybody. Yes, everybody. Yeah. Right on, you too. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's all get through Stop this. And, and let's talk again soon. Yep, definitely, definitely. All right, Matt. We'll talk later. Take care. The Pro Fools Podcast is brought to you by The Residence Studios. The Residence Studios is a destination studio located in central Long Island, one hour from Manhattan, one hour to the Hamptons. We offer a state-of-the-art recording and mixing studio, photo and video facilities with hotel-like amenities, five minutes from the beach and minutes away from Long Island's major attractions. Contact us at theresidencestudios at gmail.com or Instagram at theresidencestudios. I hope you've enjoyed the Pro Fools podcast as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. There's no one right answer on how to make a great recording. To make great recordings, you must do your best and work your hardest. Don't be afraid to make mistakes, but be sure to quickly get over them and most importantly, learn from them. Because a wise man knows what a fool he's been. Make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on the bell so you can be notified when we post on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can donate via PayPal at theprofoolspodcast at gmail.com and at theprofoolspodcast at Patreon. Email us, questions and otherwise, at theprofoolspodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, theprofoolspodcast.com.